Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking to B. Coleman, the author of Hello Avatar, Rise of the Network Generation. B. Coleman is Assistant Professor of Writing and New Media in MIT's Program in Writing and Humanistic Studies and Comparative Media Studies. She is Faculty Director of the C3 Game Culture and Mobile Media Initiative. Beth Coleman, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. You're welcome. So what do you mean when you use the word avatar? What I mean by avatar is not just the little figures you see if you're playing a, a game, but all the ways in which we represent ourselves with networked media. So from emails to your Facebook page to even emoticons. There's a long history of how we use visual but also text objects to express, you know, to communicate, to say, how do you feel, what are you doing, all the rest of it. And what I'm talking about in Hello Avatar is just the increase in that, but also the changes of uh, just acclimating ourselves to a network culture. So as this network culture grows, I mean, I would imagine most people, if they think of how avatars began, would think of video games in which, you know, you're playing a character. Um, in this, in this, I guess, increased network world, what's the importance of having avatars? I mean, one would think that I would understand if I'm, if I'm portraying a role in a game which has certain rules, it would make sense to have an avatar that's out there. But in a network society, when you're on a social network or you're walking around and, and you may have an avatar, what's the advantage of having an avatar in those situations? Well, avatars are old. They're really ancient. The word is Sanskrit, and it comes from the Hindu tradition where a god would manifest him or herself in the body of a mortal, usually a hero, to achieve a certain goal or end. So the more recent notion of Avatar, that it's a, a digital graphical figure that's embedded in like a virtual world or a game world, that came about in the early 90s with um, Habitat and uh, some other uh, very progressive game designers who start to think about how can social media be brought into game spaces and how can avatars become more meaningful for their users. And, and there's a history where people are really connecting with their characters and all the rest of it. But the thing that I think is important now and what's kind of, I think, a, a pivotal change with this moment where we have increasingly pervasive computing, things that are portable, also increasingly real-time communication, whether it's SMS or it's FaceTime or it's Skype. The importance there for me for an avatar is how do we um, find each other in all these different locations where we're showing up? We're not just, I'm right now in Los Angeles, you're right now in Portland, but we're networked together in ways that are quite meaningful. So there's the literature around presence and how we feel present to each other, even with mediation. That's an important thing about how avatars become part of our everyday life and social media, not for just play, but for everything. Play, work, well, work and play, the blend of the two. Let's talk about the image of the avatar itself. Uh, does it help to have an avatar that's human as opposed to having an animal avatar or a uh, geometric avatar, something that isn't really representational? Does it re are there advantages to having a human avatar? So if you're in a situation where you've kind of launched yourself into a virtual space, a chat room, or a graphical game, and somebody's avatar, the name signifies female or the body is female, in general, even though it seems um, uh, outside of logic, 
you respond to that person as if they were a female. So in the short run, if you don't know someone, uh, they can bait you, attract you, do all kinds of things because they're representing as a female human. So in the short run, if you have a human avatar and you're gesturing things around gender or race or different things about identity, it's very powerful because people are take you in at the first look. They're persuaded by what appears. The longer story is, over time, as you get to know people and you develop relationships, whether you are a female-looking avatar or a tiger or a purple dot, it matters less and less. Because what people come to associate with that avatar is you. So they say, oh, okay, well, there's Beth, and she looks like a dragon today, or she looks like a question mark today. And more and more, the association is about this kind of aggregated thing around who I am, my networks, and my built-up relationships. So it's different in terms of strategy and also engagement of how I might use an avatar with a group of strangers and how I might use an avatar with an intimate group of friends. And you can see this played out in terms of some of the um, uh, ways in which your Facebook uh, pictures uh, represent, here's an intimate thing, we're all at the same party, and at the same time, your potential employer is going to look at your Facebook pictures. So we are always negotiating this kind of space on a public forum or a how we present ourselves in our profiles with, with social media and avatars really bring it to a head in terms of just experimenting with and also negotiating how that terrain works. So is that human nature, that human background of avatars, is that one thing that separates an avatar that is backed by an actual human being as opposed to an avatar that's backed by a computer program? Or can people generally tell the difference between the two? Right now we can usually tell a difference between uh, low-level AI, some kind of chatbot, and a person. And the way often that we can tell the difference is the nuance of communication. When somebody gets when something's a joke and when somebody just takes it literally at face value in a more mechanical way. So those meanings often come through. And we could argue back and forth about histories of, okay, when people were using the program ELISA, did they think ELISA was really a human therapist? Or it didn't matter that she wasn't a human therapist. They liked talking to this computer program. So there's, this is a long story in terms of, you know, the Turing test. Did the computer pass? Did it pass as a person? Or are we talking about different kinds of scrambling of identities? But in general, at this moment, we can often tell the difference between a machine that's not as nuanced as we are and talking to someone. And that's an important thing for me in terms of if we're using avatars and they're supposed to represent who we are, so if you have a correspondence or a working group or a gang of friends, those avatars have to be meaningful to each other. The conversation about whether, um, you know, automated avatars are going to be smart enough to engage with us down the line. Why not? But that's not where we are at the moment. So the thing about do we have to show ourselves with human faces for these avatars to be meaningful, if you look at something like Pixar, when you have less realistic uh, representations of uh, an animated character, often they're more likable, they're more compelling, we find them cuter and we want to talk to them more, engage them more than if we have a kind of like 
stiff, almost real, uncanny valley of an avatar where you look at something like the Final Fantasy movie or the movie with um, that Christmas movie about the train speeding and Tom Hanks and uh, the, he was a conductor. The Polar Express? Yeah, the Polar Express. <laughs> the Polar Express. It was fascinating in terms of the technology, but it was just nails on the chalkboard as a viewer because it was too close and it was that slippage, that slippage between it's not real, real enough. So avatars, it's the same lesson at this moment in time where because we don't have a perfection of simulation, and I'm not even sure that's something that's important to aspire to, to engage with a level of comfort, what is familiar, what is funny to us, what is findable for us, the cartoon character can be powerful in a way uh, that uh, the uh, super realistic one is is less so. Because the awkwardness in something like a Second Life avatar, you notice more, wow, you walk like a broken robot, but you're supposed to look like a hunky guy or, or whatever it is. Where that doesn't happen so much in something like Habbo Hotel, where they are 2.5D cartoon characters. So you don't have that kind of expectation around behavior. So earlier this year in Japan, uh, they announced that there was a five-girl singing group, and girl number five was, I guess, an avatar of the four kind of composited. Here's a situation in which somebody was able to pull off a, essentially a girl singing act where one of the girls that everybody accepted was real was created by their computer programmer. Idoru, which came out, I don't know, probably at the end of the 90s, is a William Gibson novel that's about a Japanese pop star who's married to a virtual person. And she might be a pop star also, I don't remember. But she's not... She's AI. She's a construction of computer programming. She's not a born person. She's not a flesh-and-blood person. She's not even a cyborg, like the Terminator. So, you know, it's more and more abstracted in terms of, well, where's the body and where's the person? And... These kinds of uh, edge culture things, and I talk about in my book, there's a chapter about a group of uh, virtual cannibals, these people who have used the virtual space and avatars to uh, do something that is both illegal and impossible for many different reasons and inappropriate at the very least in our culture, which is cannibalism. Like they're, And it's all sex play, like they're... They're cooking people, they're eating them, like they're doing all this stuff, and it's all, you know, virtually represented. And the claim that they make, because it's based on a whole culture of a certain kind of very, very regimented sex play, um, is it's not pretend, it's real. We're just manifesting it in the best way we can, because we can't actually do this with real bodies in the real world. And in some ways, if you think about the fifth member of the girl group is an avatar, she's a virtual person, the uh, love interest in Idoru is a virtual person, These are some. this is some of playing with the, the near future of how we are coming to understand our bodies, their limits, and also, well, they're not limits, how we're being kind of extended across these networks. And what I would suggest is, in the short term, in the kind of everyday use, um, there's a few people, there's definitely like a small line of like otaku who want to go to resorts and marry their virtual consorts, and they do that. 
But most of us don't. Most of us are interested in having uh, kind of love relationships with people who can be physically present. But what those stories tell us is um, there are all these inroads in terms of what it means to actually live in a networked culture. Even if I'm not getting married to a virtual person, for me to be constantly extending myself where I've got the grandparent on Skype, I've got you on SMS, there's ways in which we're feeling these extensions, and some of those stories are just the kind of extreme versions that kind of reflect back to us, oh, this is how the world is changing, or this is how we are participating in changing our world. Well, so far we've been talking about avatars as representations of people, but that's not all your book talks about. As a matter of fact, you could argue from very much the beginning that the book is about how avatars allow humans a degree of agency in this networked world. Could you talk about the importance of what avatars, how avatars allow people to do things as opposed to just represent themselves in a, in a networked world? The bottom line for me about the moment we're in, not the future, but the future that we can build, is how do we understand our ability to impact the world that we live in, and avatars and agencies are closely aligned in that thought for me. And so what I mean by agency is, how do you have a sense of being able to kind of make change in your world? And games and game worlds are pretty instructive here because the testimony that you get from players and the research we see around gaming is people take it on so passionately because of two things primarily. They have a strong sense of camaraderie with the people they're, with whom they're playing. And the other side of it is they have a strong sense of being able to make change in a world that's meaningful to them. And the question I ask is, how can we understand some of the tools that we have available to us, whether it's SMS or Skyping or uh, this uh, kind of array of sometimes real-time, sometimes asynchronous tools in terms of making change in the world. So the last chapter in the book, I talk about the Internet of Things, and I talk about a kind of animation of the world where objects are becoming increasingly smart and computable. So it can be a building, it could be a cup, it could be the space between the door and the courtyard where we have an increasing uh, network of censored objects so we can get reports about, you know, diagramming in virtual space. All these things are happening in real space. So these, these, this, this coming moment is quite important in terms of how can we tether what had been known as, like, the virtual with the real to get a space of the actual. So, for example, when the um, earthquake um, happened in Japan last spring, um, there was a crowdsourcing moment, so many people using a network connection to report locally, here's, the, um, uh, here's what I'm reading in terms of contamination levels. Like, here's what this problem is with flooding, here's with this problem with uh, radiation. And what you found, not from scientists, but from the crowdsourcing of many people distributed living in different areas, you got a robust reading of how... Um, the country was doing it as a whole. So you could find locally what was happening, and then also in the country as a whole, you could get a picture. And the actual technical um, piece of network media that people were using for some of this reporting was um, an app, a platform called Patube that a group of British architects 
had designed. And um, it was designed to be um, reused by everyone. So you get um, the basic platform, and then you configure it as you need. And people used it to crowdsource information about an emergency that was happening at that time. That's that kind of example, and also the kind of Ushahidi crisis mapping um, application platform that was developed in Kenya by a group of activists during the time that there was upheaval around the um, elections, but has been used subsequently in Haiti, in the UK, in different sites for different reasons. So the ability to use something uh, flexible and easily and also to some degree of real time, because if there's a problem on the ground, you can use kind of this networked space to actualize something, you know, in the present moment on the ground. So there's that side of it in terms of if we're moving toward an Internet of Things, how can we understand agency and also agency in relationship to how people are designing media and how we're using media? Beth Coleman, the author of Hello Avatar, Rise of the Network Generation. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. My pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. You can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2011, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.